0: who is Gen Z, what do they care about, and why does it matter to your business? Today's episode of the Silicon Alley podcast, we are talking about all things Gen Z. I'm William Glass, CEO and co-founder of Ostrich, and of course, your host of Silicon Alley. Anne-Marie Hayek, the founder of Global Mosaic, Z-Speak, and the author of the upcoming book, The We Generation, is on the podcast to dive into all the things that you need to know about Gen Z how they are changing the political and cultural landscape and what that means for your business and why culture matters. And if you don't get this right, you will lose out and your brand will no longer become relevant. If you haven't already, go ahead and pound that subscribe button so you get notified when new episodes of the Silicon Alley podcast air every Friday. Without further ado, I hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Silicon Alley podcast featuring the Anne-Marie Hayek. Are you interested in growing and scaling your business? Welcome to the Silicon Alley Podcast, where you'll hear from entrepreneurs, venture capitalists, and top performers on what it truly takes to grow and scale a business. You'll walk away with actionable insights you can apply in your own business and life. Now to William Glass, the CEO and co-founder of Ostrich, and your host of the Silicon Alley Podcast. Anne-Marie, welcome to the Silicon Alley Podcast. Super excited to have you on today.
1: Thank you, William. I'm so excited to talk to you.
0: I am too. And uh, there's a few things that I definitely want to touch on. You've got a new book coming out, which I think is really interesting. And it's specifically about the generation of we, Gen Z. So I definitely want to talk about that. You are a um, cultural consultant, which is not something that you hear every day. So definitely want to talk about that and also learn a little bit more about your um, journey. But the first place I'd like to start is in your bio, um, you describe yourself as a social agitator. Can you talk to me a little bit about what that is and, and what do you mean by social agitator?
1: I love that you're starting there. That's great. I am how I would really describe myself. Sometimes people say, describe your professional history. And I think that for most entrepreneurs, their history really begins with childhood, right? It, depends, it begins with who they are, right? As, as people. And so I'm very much a lifelong student of humanity. I mean, I think back now to how I spent my time from the youngest age, being really fascinated in how different people lived in different parts of the world and in history and how the arc of humanity evolved and changed over time, right? And I've had a chance to live on four continents. and I've had a chance to do work across more than 50 countries and visit almost hundred countries. And so I feel like I see culture and I see different societies with a fairly broad perspective that you only get from from having the opportunity to travel to all these different places, right? See how different people think, how different people live, how different systems work. And so for me, it's made me really passionate about the systems that are working, the systems that aren't working. And so as a US citizen, now being based back in the US again, I find myself very engaged in the social issues of our time. And I think about the work that I do as a cultural consultant, which we'll think about, uh, talk about more, and also the publication and writing of this book are really all in service of agitating progress, agitating social progress, right? Because we as humans are evolving all the time. And I think all of us would say hey, coming out of 2020, huge inflection point, COVID, right? Really exposed Absolutely. a lot of the flaws in our system. So we're all at a place now where we know we're not going back to exactly where we came from. So where are we going next, right? and really trying to agitate for, for change um, and positive change coming out of this inflection point.
0: Yeah, no, that, that makes sense. And I appreciate you uh, ex- expanding on that a little bit, because it gives a little more context as to uh, as to uh, <laughs> where that, that comes from and why you describe yourself that way. I'm, I'm curious, have you always been interested in other cultures? You said it started at a young age. Like, I am someone, I studied, I was an international relations major. I spent a lot of time, I spent a year in Thailand after I graduated, teaching English there, have traveled to a number of places. So I understand you know, the draw to culture, but I'm curious what like really, really instilled that in you when you were younger.
1: It's really interesting. I feel like if we're all given the space in childhood or as adults, if we are asked to think back to our childhood and when we were bored, right, when we were unstructured, when we were unscheduled, what did we gravitate toward? And for me, so much of that was looking at pictures in National Geographic magazine. It was pulling out my parents' encyclopedia Britannica, because it was before the internet, I'm aging myself, and skipping from country to country to read about these different places and how people lived and look at the pictures of how people dressed. And it's really, I always kind of joke that it, it was kind of fluke of nature that I was actually born in central Iowa. So I was not born, I was not born in New York City. I was not born in London. I was not born in a hugely global place where I was inspired by the global community around me. It was really something that was inside myself. And as soon as I had the opportunity as a young adult, all I did was live overseas and travel overseas and for really most of the last 30 years.
0: Fair enough. Yeah, I love that. And I think that probably ties very well with the definition of millennials and Gen Zers in terms of, uh, of, of the travel. And uh, I'm sure we'll definitely get into that. But what are some of the things that you've learned um, living on four different continents, visiting over 100 countries, working in 50 of them over your expansive travels, Anne-Marie?
1: You know, I think a lot of it is that we don't, none of us really realize how much our immediate environment impacts us, right? And so, so many of the ways that we see things, the ways that we interact, our worldview, and the things we gravitate toward, the conversations we have, have been historically based in kind of our our geofenced existence, right? And so it really has been travel that has given me the perspective. That's really the big thing. If I were to write another book, the title would be perspective. It would really be all it would all be about perspective, right? Because the more we brought in our perspective, then I think the more open-minded we are and the more we understand that there are so many different ways to do things. There are so many different ways for our political system to work. There's so many different ways for our educational system to work. There are so many ways for us to think differently about how our police interact with our citizens, right? All of these things. And when you have a chance to travel the world and you see all these different ways of doing things, it makes you realize there isn't one right way. There isn't one wrong way. There are so many different ways of doing things. And the more perspectives and more conversations we have, the more we can come up with with better solutions, right? And continue to evolve in a positive direction.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. I think there's so much that can be learned from other cultures, experience that travel. It really it really does open your mind because there's not one way or one right way to do things, right? There's many different ways and you really only get to experience that when you're immersed in another culture or society or system.
1: Absolutely. And there's, and there's a quote that I would massacre it, I think, if I tried to recreate it perfectly. But the gist of the quote is that you can never return home again, right? That when you really travel, and not just as a tourist, right? Not just where you're checking things off a box, but when you really go to a place and you spend time with people and you spend time immersing in the lifestyle there, and then you return home, you can never return home again because you are never the same person again. So when you travel, it actually ends up: the more you travel, the more you realize it's not actually about the destination as much as it is that it's continuing to evolve you as a person. And then every time you come home, you return as a slightly different person, more. More, you know, with a more expansive experience and perspective and ideas. And you look at your yeah. own home differently, right?
0: Absolutely. Yeah. I can think of examples from my own time overseas and even in diet, like diet to me is one of the easiest things to point to, you know, spending a, a year in a place where everything was rice and rice noodles or things like that. And before I never, I never ate rice it being from, you know, out Al- growing up in Alabama, right. The The diet was different. And now I, you know, there's just little things like that, that you pick up, but I'm curious from your own experience, Anne-Marie, like what are some of the things that have changed um, that you can look back when you've returned home and some of the things that have changed based on your experiences?
1: How interesting. Well, really becoming an entrepreneur. I mean, I think that I've always had an entrepreneurial bent, but out of undergrad, I went to work for Leo Burnett owned by Publicis in London, for those who are familiar with Leo Burnett. And I worked for them at headquarters in Chicago and then in New York and then in London and then really proceeded to Eastern Europe and Asia and to work for them all over the world and I was helping our multinational companies. I was basically doing anthropological kind of work linked to brand strategy, right? So helping these big multinationals understand how to expand into these countries, how people live, how people eat, how people do laundry, whatever it is, right? Um, So I really spent about 10 years doing that, and it was fantastic. I mean, I literally sat on the ground doing laundry with women, hand-washing laundry and Egypt and in Brazil and in Russia, and you know, fascinating experiences. Talk about really, really getting into the culture. I was accustomed to having so much autonomy. I was accustomed to having so much autonomy in my work, traveling around the world, working with people, designing these anthropological studies, making recommendations. And when I returned back to my home, Chicago, after those roughly 10 years, I absolutely could not work for. A big company anymore. And you know, at that point, I knew that I needed to be able to design my own life. And I wanted to be able to do exactly the kind of work that I loved and really lit me up and that I had done a lot of. And similarly, I had spent so many years living in Europe, where there's this life-work balance, right? And so that always drew me to entrepreneurialism as well, because the reality is, even though I may work 80 hours a week frequently, <laughs> and it's doing something that I love, Right. But I can do it from anywhere I want to most of the time. I travel a lot. I've done things with my kids, for example, I was running a project in China, wanted them to be exposed to Chinese language. We moved to China for six months when they were in second and fourth grade. And we just lived there and I did all my work from there because I can, right? So I can really base myself my global headquarters to some degree moves to wherever I am on the planet in any given time. And I have a wonderful you know, group of people who work for me and with me at Global Mosaic and ZSpeak. speak But as you know, most work is virtual these days, especially now post-COVID. So that was a really a big change is I think really spending time overseas, really learning what work-life balance can look like, not working a nine to five, not working for the man anymore, as they say, right? And gave me that again, comes back to perspective, gave me this idea that lots of people are doing this in the world. They're creating their own life and their own work following their passions. Yeah, And that was possible.
0: I, I love that. Yeah. Going from uh, being in Iowa, looking at National Geographic and actually getting to see and experience those places that you were uh, only getting to see through a magazine as a, as a kid and wanting that that ability to continue to have those experiences through uh, entrepreneurship. I love it
1: absolutely
0: it is so real <laughs> so talk to me about starting the business what was that process like so you had obviously the drive you no longer wanted to work for quote the man and be told that you've got to be in the office from 9 to 5 and you can't go to a soccer game or go spend time in china with your kids so what was the process like of actually starting the business
1: well And it's related to your comment about what a cultural consultancy is as well, right? Because I think this is what we get to do as entrepreneurs is we get to create what we want to create and we get to call it whatever we want to call it as well. And so I knew that I wanted to try to create this company. My first company founded in 2002 um, called Global Mosaic. And I decided that it was going to be a cultural consultancy. And initially clients and people would say, I've never heard of that what's a cultural consultancy and I said very honestly I made that up but that's what it is and that's the service that we provide and what I was really passionate about was helping and we have now to date worked with many of the largest companies in the world to fast-growing startups to governments to presidential candidates understand culture and cultural movements and cultural trends and what's coming and where are we headed and how are people living differently and thinking differently and what are their wants and needs or how how are those things evolving and so that was something that i knew that i wanted to do but with for all of us as entrepreneurs we don't know if it's going to stick right all you can do is put it out there hang the shingle as they say and see and see what happens for me because it's a consultancy and because i had really strong relationships with the clients that i had worked with over 10 years i was fortunate that when i started global mosaic that i started it myself solo just to put it out there, see what happened, it immediately took off. So I still remember receiving my first project and my profit on that first project was $14,000, which I thought was really exciting at the time, even though of course I was earning much more than that. I was previously working as an SVP, (laughs) global strategist (laughs) for BBDO before I quit to start my company. But I remembered someone hired my company to do this right? So that felt big. But within three years, we were we were doing over a million dollars in business and just have continued to grow. So I didn't have to seek funding. It was really building on relationships that we had, and it was really doing good work. And as it turns out, cultural consultancy is something that is in demand in this world. And I think for a lot of good reason, right? Because we are evolving all the time. And companies and organizations and governments and presidential candidates need to understand where we're going and why.
0: And yeah and i think it's it's appropriately named as well global mosaic right you're putting together this mosaic of all the different cultures and subcultures and you know things across the world and helping people uh, businesses understand these different cultural movements and why they should care about them could you give a little example emory of some of the work that you do there's some interesting insights on the website and definitely movements that i think we can all relate to but i'm just curious if you could give an example of like what does a cultural consultant actually do?
1: <laughs> sure, absolutely. So we have worked with, and just for confidentiality, I won't list client names, but for example, we have worked with pharmaceutical companies and consumer health companies and helping them understand this trajectory toward health and wellness and the importance of things being natural and worked with them to create a whole division of their company that's based on natural healthcare products, right? This from a company previously, that was all based in chemical, right? So really helping them understand this whole transition to natural. Similarly, we have worked with companies on creating an entire sustainability practice, essentially, right? As we know, this is incredibly important. It was important to millennials. It is a non-negotiable for Gen Zs and really understanding what sustainability looks like. How do you really evolve your whole business ecosystem so that from the way that you're sourcing your products, from the way you're interacting with the farmers, the suppliers, the seamstresses, whatever it might be, right, through the packaging, what does that need to look like in 2021 and beyond? So it's that kind of work. Also, future of you know, the, the future of work, right? We're doing a lot of work in that space right now. The future of gender. We, we are working with a fashion mogul right now on creating a new kind of future of fashion company, which is fascinating. And a lot of what we're exploring is not only what does that need to look like in terms of sustainability, what does a future of fashion company look like in terms of sustainability, but in terms of gender, right? Yeah. What does masculinity look like moving forward? What does femininity look like moving forward? And of course, there's so much gender fluidity, right? So how do you reflect that if you're a fashion company? Yeah, so really fascinating, fascinating areas that are continuing to evolve and grow and challenge us all the time.
0: Yeah, I know they are. And they're very strategic as well, right? It wasn't just, let's go create a marketing campaign that really taps into what's going on with natural, you know, like just spice it up and make our line look like it's natural. It's actually creating a whole division of a company to focus on, on that or creating a whole new business that's focused on this new idea of gender and understanding what is a, f- a fashion forward brand look like, a future fashion-forward brand look like?
1: It's, it's absolutely, it's trying to make fundamental change at the fundamental level, right? So really, inc- really influence and inspire companies to understand how they need to evolve in these key areas moving forward. We actually just had in the last 24 hours a major university come to us who said, you know, we're having a harder time attracting prospective students, which of course are Gen Zs, because we are in a state we are in the part of a state that is primarily white and 50% of Z's are non-white and diversity is important and the needs of students have evolved. And so this, this university said, will you please come help us partner with us in, in leading the work to evolve how we think about we as a university need to show up in the experience that we need to provide to students today. Right. So that's really exciting work. That's exactly why I wrote the book. That's exactly why I'm so passionate about Gen Z is helping an educational institution, right? Understand how to best serve the needs of these evolving students, which are so different from millennials and certainly so different from students 30 years ago.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. I'd love to dive into that. So, Can you talk to me a little bit about the book, Generation We, talking about Generation Z, Gen Z, and some of the things that you learned or things that are important for entrepreneurs, business leaders to think about when it comes to this generation.
1: Absolutely. And I'll just say first as well, so the name of the book, as you said, is, is Generation We. The reason it's named Generation We is because in all the work that we've done, and we have we have done so much independent research in building this book over the last year and a half, and we have literally worked hand in hand with thousands of Zs, right? So, so this is very much for me, I am elevating the platform and giving voice to this generation, but I'm really letting them tell the story to a large degree, right? Through all these interviews, through all this research, it's really through their voices. It's through their lens through which they see the world. One of the things that's really extraordinary about them is they are so collective in orientation. They use pronouns like we- when you talk to them about what the American dream means, right? if you talk to boomers about what the American dream, and I feel like we've all been trashing boomers for so long, so I don't mean to do that, but I'm just talking about cultural evolution that boomers historically and older generations will talk about the American dream as that means that I should have the opportunity to have a good job. I should have the opportunity to live in a nice house. I should have have an opportunity to grow my family. I should have the opportunity to save for retirement, to retire, et cetera. You ask Generation Z about the American dream. And first of all, they'll say that it's flawed because it's not accessible to huge swaths of our population. But they talk about how the American dream should be that we All have access to these things that we work together to create these things so they're very very collective in orientation i'll talk a little bit more about why that is Um, but that's why we're calling them generation we and as i said at the beginning as a student lifelong student of humanity not just culture but humanity and living in all these different places right i think we know if you if you look at the history of humanity that it's like this pendulum that is always swinging from one direction to the other right so we as humans As cultures, we tend to go too far, maybe in one direction, and then we overcorrect and go too far in the other direction, whatever it might be, right? And we really are coming out of about 40 years of boomers and that whole generation because they were so large, and they have driven so much of our politics and so many of our priorities and so much our approach to capitalism and our corporate work environment and all these things for decades and decades and decades. And it's been much more of an individualistic approach to... Approach to life and, and, and achievement. And part of that is because they grew up during the largest economic expansion, right, the US has had. So it worked for them, right? There were jobs, there were benefits, there was money, there was, you know, investments continued to expand. Whereas for Generation Z, they've grown up on the other side of that, where they actually see what the last 40 years of that kind of approach to capitalism and everything else has done, right? It's, it's created greater inequality. Lots of people have been left behind. It has degraded our climate, right? It has not valued our planet or the people or the animals or a lot of the inputs into our products, etc. So, So they are very collective in nature because they now see clearly where we stand and what's required. And they see it very much as a collective effort that is required moving forward. So that's why it's called Generation We. And that's one of, the, and so I'll talk about a couple of the, things that to me are really most compelling about them. But I want to go, and one of them is that they are so unified. They're actually the largest generation now in the U.S. and in the world. They make up 27% of the U.S. population. We have all been obsessed with millennials for the last 15 years, right? <laughs> and so now that conversation is beginning to change. Now Generation Z is actually overtaken millennials as the largest generation. They're expected to surpass them in terms of earning power and spending power, by the end of this decade, but that's not really what makes them most powerful. It makes the most powerful is how unified they are. And remember how we were talking about when I was growing up, I had to travel to broaden my perspective. And if I hadn't had the opportunity to travel, if I had stayed in central Iowa, I would most likely continue to have a much more limited worldview, no judgment there, just based on what I had, what, you know, what my life experience had provided to me. What's extraordinary about Z's is, they were, they were only three years old when the iPhone came out, right? They were literally in elementary school and all these platforms came out, Instagram and YouTube, you name it, right? And their number one app is TikTok. So millennials are Instagram, right? Zs are yeah. TikTok. They get their news on TikTok. They spend, I mean, the far majority of Zs will say TikTok is, is the app best suited for their generation or where they spend the most time. And what's extraordinary about TikTok is the algorithm is very, very different than the algorithms on things like Instagram or Facebook, where we open Instagram or Facebook potentially, right? And you see who you follow, you see your friends, so it kind of reinforces that echo chamber. Whereas on TikTok, the algorithm is more crowdsourced. So yes, mm-hmm. you see things from your friends, right? But you see whatever is really trending, and what what teens, what Z's post on TikTok are real stories, right? And so and so on any given day a Z may open up their TikTok and what they see on their For You page when they open it up might be a young black man talking about an encounter he had with the police the day before. It might be a young trans teen in Alabama talking about what what that experience is like of trying to come out and trying to explore that identity, right? In a place that might not be as open to it, for example. It may be... It may be a larger sized teen who is talking about what it's like to go shopping for clothes. And so what this has done is, it has allowed this whole generation to almost have the experience of traveling the world and understanding all these diverse perspectives and lifestyles without actually having to travel. I think like the corollary would have been is, imagine when you were growing up if every morning you came down to breakfast and there were 10 strangers sitting around your breakfast table and they were your age, say you're 15 years old, you come down to breakfast, there are 10, 15 year olds you've never met before representing the country and the world and all giving you a short little little story about their life reality. And so when older generations say that Gen Z doesn't necessarily have the lived experience to understand what's happening in politics or understand what's happening in climate or understand what's happening in racial relations or whatever it is, My experience has been that they actually have had access to a much broader and more diverse range of experiences than many, many people of older generations because of their constant connectivity online. Yeah. And so they're very unified and that's where their power comes in. Yeah,
0: that's really, really interesting to think about. And I I like how you framed it as, um, you know, Say say what you want about TikTok. It is it is the app, right for for Gen Z. But it is stories, right? You have to do well on the app for something to, be, to become trending. There's usually a story, a narrative, um, which isn't necessarily the case for some of the other the other platforms like Instagram or Facebook. It can just be kind of screaming and yelling, and that's that's the narrative. But there's actually stories that educate and bring in all these diverse perspectives.
1: It's first person stories. And just to offer a very tangible example is last summer, summer 2020, right? When Black Lives Matter was really at its height, Zs every day were sharing their stories. Black youth all over the US and, and all over the world were sharing their stories in TikTok every day. And Zs were having conversations around what people were experiencing. And, and whether, whether Aziz was white or Asian or Latinx or, or whatever, they were part of that conversation and they were, they were building this kind of shared empathy by hearing all of these stories. At that exact same time last summer, Netflix, to those of us who are not on TikTok, those of us maybe of older generations that are not on TikTok, they had, they had a special feature of the movie The Help during Black Lives Matter. Right, which for any of us who've read the book or seen the movie is basically about a white, wealthy, affluent Southerner's uh, relationship with her black nanny and maid. Well, that's very different. That's not the same kind of authentic storytelling that Z's are accustomed to. Oh. So Z's are accustomed to first-person storytelling from from the protagonist, right, from the source.
0: Yeah. Emery, what do you think are the implications, right? You've, you've really painted a great picture of how Gen Z thinks this collective we, seeing all these different perspectives, having a lot of empathy. What do you think are the implications culturally, as well as from, you know, thinking about a, from a, an entrepreneur or business perspective?
1: Culturally, I'll start with culturally, and then I'll go into <laughs> business perspective as well. Um, culturally, a couple of things that, that are happening that are going to be just incredibly huge. And 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 one is culturally our the way that we think about diversity, right? And and it's it's been said that Gen Zs are the most diverse generation. They absolutely are, but I think that people don't fully understand the implications of that. So we have the US has has had a white majority right since our founding. Yeah. And in fact if you think back to boomers, boomers are 82% white. So if you think about our policies, our politics, our voting electorate, everything, right, has been dominated by our white constituents. And now you have a generation that is 50% non-white. And so what you see is, for example, in this last election in 2020, where the Zs showed up overwhelmingly in favor of Biden, even though Biden wasn't their first pick. Bernie Sanders was their first pick. I think you probably all know that, right? They they don't love Biden, but they are generally more progressive and left-leaning, right? And their primary issues were climate, were racial justice, and were gun regulation. And so, you know, we're really seeing issues, issues that maybe have... Predominantly impacted the minority, mm-hmm. like racial relations, taking yeah. on increased priority, right? And so we'll consin- we'll continue to s- see those things really come to the fore. I think I'm trying to think of other. There are so many things that I can say about Z's. So I'm trying to think. <laughs> what, are, what are the couple of things that I I really really want to focus on? So I mean, politics is definitely one of those things. From a corporate standpoint, from a corporate standpoint, Z's are again because of their access right when we used to purchase things as kids um, or as teens we purchased what we liked and what we could afford right we didn't really have a line of sight into who was producing them or what the impact was on the planet for z's there's a chapter in our book called uh, climate generation and this is the first generation that has literally been born on a planet that was already in crisis, right? The planet has been on crisis since they were born onto it. The last six years have been the six hottest years on record. Over half of Zs say that where they live has already been impacted by climate change. They are the generation with the lowest incidence, stated incidents for wanting to have children someday because they worry about what the future of our planet will look like. And so for them they view every purchase, they're hyper aware of this. So they view every purchase, right? As a vote, as a vote on how the planet is used. On a vote for, are we contributing? Are we further contributing to carbon emissions? Or are we we contributing to a better solution, right? Everything is a vote. And so that's why we see, we see a lot of these brands that previously did really well that are struggling and new brands emerging. And Zs aren't afraid to create their own companies if the companies that exist now don't meet their values. A great example of this actually is Victoria's Secret, which was very popular for a long time, right? Mm -hmm. But in recent years, I think many of us are aware of a lot of the transgressions, particularly that that, that Zs would point out. And so everything from sweatshop labor, because they know about that whole ecosystem, to the lack of diversity, in the models to lack of gender diversity. And there was actually a point a couple, I think it was two years ago, when Victoria's Secret was criticized for not including more diverse or body positive models in their famous runway shows. And the CEO at the time, Lex Wexner responded by saying that we just won't do any more runway shows because we don't wanna ruin the fantasy of our primary target, which is men. At the same time, at the same time, right? There was a brand Emerging um, airy right their underwear their underwear primarily features user generated content. Real Z's real people wearing their underwear they came out several years ago and said we are never going to retouch any of our photography again, it is their gender fluid. Uh, models, body positive models. And there's one of the fastest growing, most fascinating Z-led companies is called Parade, which I don't know if you're, f- if you're familiar with. But
0: I'm if, not familiar, yeah.
1: Um, a Z who dropped out of college to create a multi, almost immediately multi-million dollar underwear company that represented the values of Zs. It was body positive, that was sustainable from start to finish along that whole ecosystem. It's incredibly powerful just to see in one industry that if a company does not heed, <laughs> doesn't have an understanding and does not heed um, the wishes of these young generations, which again, the youngest generation in our country right now, well on its way to having more spending power, consumer power than any other generation, it matters. It matters, right?
0: Yeah, absolutely. And it's it's interesting, yeah, this voting with your, with your dollar, right? Because for previous generations, that hasn't been, I mean, Maybe there's been some thought to it, but it's been, as you said, more kind of self-centered of like, how would this item or thing make me look or make me feel? And less of that we kind of collective mentality when it comes to everyday decisions, just really, really interesting.
1: It is, and, and they are not perfect. I, I do want to say really quick because I don't want to make Gen Z sound like they always make the perfect decisions. They don't, they're young, they're teenagers. Sometimes they just want to buy things. So they're still driving a lot of purchases in the fast fashion space. You know, I've had lots of conversations with these with where they say, you know, it's hard because we have so much awareness. We know so much at such a young age. So we can't make a purchase without thinking about the impact this purchase is having, right? On yeah. the planet, on the workers, on whatever it might be. But you know what? Sometimes I just want that shirt because it's such a cute shirt. And so then they buy it and then they feel guilty about it. And then what they do to counter that is then they thrift it, right? So there's now this whole movement towards circular fashion where Zs are thrifting like crazy and trading clothes and everything else so that things don't end up in landfills. But I just wanted to clarify, I don't want to create a picture that is incorrect because there is some tension there. Just because they have an awareness doesn't mean that always translates into the behavior. But increasingly, as they develop more disposable income, it will will continue to become a larger, larger, larger part of their purchases.
0: Yeah. No, that's interesting. Do you see, and I know we've been, the, hopefully this doesn't go against the, uh, the the whole title of the book, The We yeah. Generation, right? We've been describing them as collective, but I imagine that there's got to be sub-segments or subgroups within Gen Z, right? Or
1: Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. So, so a couple of things that I will say. So you do have, in general, Gen Z, because they are exposed to so much online, right? They do tend to have, as I said, greater perspective, greater collective empathy and understanding. And so there are 20% of Gen Z identifies, for example, as Republican. As I had said, Zs in general tend to be more progressive leaning, which doesn't mean that they're card carrying Democrats, at all they actually one third of z's identify as independent because they don't want to just prescribe to one you know one party or the other they want to sure. have the freedom to create their own positions on things rather than have that dictated to them but about 20 percent to themselves as republicans which is young, is 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 lower than any other generation but what's important is the things that the z republicans believe Because even the Z Republicans believe the great majority of Z Republicans say blacks are not treated equally to whites in our country, whereas older Republicans don't agree with that. Z Republicans also say climate change is the direct cause of human behavior. Those are Z Republicans. Older Republicans have a different perspective on that. Z Republicans also say we need a larger government and government needs to take more responsibility. Of course, that is flies directly right in the face of many of the historical Republican.
0: Sure. Yeah.
1: Right. Um, and and so yes, and so we do have people with different viewpoints for sure, but I think directionally, because of their access to all this information, they are more unified than previous generations have been.
0: That makes sense. Yeah, and I appreciate you making that clarification because there still are obviously trends that are are throughout the generation, right? Even though there are different pockets and nuances uh, within groups.
1: A hundred percent. And did and did you see Z faces, you know, at the storming of the Capitol in January? Of course, right? You saw people of every generation there. But in general, they very much, another thing that's really interesting about them that is related to this collectivity is the way that they really do support populations that don't necessarily represent themselves, right? When we think back to the civil yeah. rights movement in the 1960s, we think about the 1960s as being a really important time for civil rights, which of course it was. But the largest civil rights protests in the 60s were very small relative to the people who showed up, for example, Black Lives Matter over, over the last year. And the other thing is that those movements were largely led, right, by the black community. Whereas now you really see across the racial and economics or, um, and ethnic spectrum Zs and, other, and, and older generations as well, really showing up for these movements. So for example, only about 15% of Gen Z is black But more than 90% of Gen Z has participated in some kind of Black Lives Matter protest rally advocating for it, etc. Same thing with LGBTQ, right, so 16% of Z's identify as LGBTQ+, but you have about 80% of Z's supporting equal rights for LGBTQ+, and anyone along the gender spectrum. so it really is interesting how for the first time, we're really seeing this broad-based support of their peers, regardless on if, if, if you identify that way or not, right? And that comes yeah. back again to a lot of this kind of collective empathy that's been built through platforms like TikTok and then just developing their worldview more based on their global connectivity digitally than the conversations limited to their dinner table, right? Or their town or city.
0: No, yeah, I think that's that's really interesting, right? If you think about social movements, previously it's always been that community that's either being oppressed or whatever the issues are that are standing up. Whereas we're now seeing that there's other groups that are looking in and Gen Z specifically saying, hey, this isn't right, we're gonna stand up even though we're not a part of, we don't identify as LGBTQ, we're not black, but we still support these movements.
1: Absolutely, an allyship, right? We've heard a lot about what it means to be an ally, I think a lot the last couple of years. I mean, that's really an idea, the idea of allyship, right? So so you may not be black, you may not be Asian, you may not be trans, but you can be an ally to those communities, right? Which means that you show up and you help elevate the platform and elevate awareness, but you hand the microphone over to the people in those communities, right? And let them speak for themselves. So that is something that Zs feel incredibly Powerfully about is this idea of allyship and really being allies to each other?
0: Yeah, it's really interesting, Emory. In terms of thinking about using culture, and I know we focused on Gen Z because that's the book, and I appreciate you going in deep. But I want to take a little bit of a step back and think about just. There's a lot of other movements, especially if you go to Global Mosaic's website, you'll see some of the top ones that you guys have identified and talked about, which I think are, are great, such as like a, like aging and how that's yes. kind of changed and our perceptions around that. Yes. I'm, I'm curious, how, how should companies, how should people start thinking about these cultural movements and ultimately meeting their customers, consumers, where they are, um, whether they're in these movements and identifying them, being a part of them?
1: And are there specific movements that you have in mind? when you when you ask
0: that question i guess i'm just thinking in general right because from a, a from every perspective it's going to be a little bit different depending on what the movement is but thinking about how do you do it in an authentic way right we've seen yes. brands that will you know support something because every other company is but do we really believe that you know someone throws a black square on their instagram that they really are supporting and doing everything they can to support you know african americans right so how do we how do companies actually do do this in an authentic way where they support the cultures and communities that they that are um, important to them, right? And it's going to be yeah. different depending on the business, obviously.
1: It 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 absolutely is. But I think that what you're saying is really important because the age of tokenism
0: <laughs>
1: versus true representation, which I can talk about what I mean by those words, and the age of greenwashing, all of that is over, and it's really over because because the digital space allows for such transparency, right? And so, whatever a company really is doing is clear to people who want to research that, which, again, for these younger generations, they spend a lot of time doing. And so, for example, we are working with the company on an ongoing basis, but we are their internal Gen Z intelligence. So, once a week, we run a webinar basically but it is made up of Z ambassadors that we bring to the table. And then the executives once a week have a chance to ask these Gen Z ambassadors, hey, what do you really need us to do in in terms of sustainability, right? Or what do you really need us to do in terms of diversity? What does that mean? What does that look like? And in one of these meetings recently, there was a new product there was a new product and I don't want to, I don't want to give too much detail away, but it was, a, it was a new product that was very colorful. Let me just say that. It was a new product that was very colorful. And so the executives posed to the Gen Z ambassadors on the webinar, on this live, live webinar, hey, we've created this and we think this is a brand that can really represent diversity and inclusion because we've included all these colors, everything about the brand and the product and the packaging is, you know, this kind of rainbow of colors, right? And the Zs called bullshit before they even finished presenting their idea. And the Zs said, right, we're so sick of the rainbow washing. We're so sick of the greenwashing. Tell me right now, what kind of true representation adversity you have on your executive floor, you have in your board. Show us your HR hiring, hiring policies, you know? Show us how you're supporting legitimately the, LGBT, the LGBTQ plus population. And so it just is not, it's just not going to fly anymore. It's not going to fly anymore. We're really starting to see that, as I gave the example earlier, even in the underwear category, right, around the companies that are really embracing this. And so it's really making fundamental change, which is why the work that we tend to do with companies or educational institutions or whatever it is really begins at the fundamental level. right? And what that really looks like within your organization. And I used the words earlier, tokenism versus representation, which is a huge thing that Zs differentiate between. For those people who are not as familiar with those words is tokenism basically means, right, that you hire just enough or put in your advertising just enough people of color that you appear to be paying attention to diversity and inclusion, for example, right, versus true representation, right, which is how are you really representing these people meaningfully, and it's interesting because Z even really called that out in the political space, so when Kamala Harris was elected, right, and the rest of the world was cheering, and Kamala is an amazing achievement for all kinds of reasons, right, not to be denied, I'm simply representing the Z perspective on Kamala was that while the rest of our Many, many people, I shouldn't say the entire rest of our country, but while many people were celebrating the fact that we had our first Asian, our first, right, all of these things that Kamala was, right, right? And Z said, well, okay, that's skin color, that's ethnicity, that's important, but what have her policies been that have impacted communities of color? And they were really looking at some of her policies around incarceration and things like that right from her time in California so it's not only involving corporations but it's it's in the way that they look at their political candidates they look deeply they look really deeply to see what's really hiding under the you know or behind behind the curtain
0: yeah and, and I think part of that also goes to what we have access to right we have access to more information in history than yeah. we've ever had because of social media and you know people can do their own research in ways that was not possible 20 years ago
1: Absolutely, and, and you know, there is a flip side to that. The last chapter in my book is called the Gen Z burden. And it's a really important one, it's not one to ignore because Zs have access to all this information, right? But they've never, they've never really gotten a break from it. They've been on their digital devices from a very young age. And even if you think back to when 9-11 happened, right? And millennials were relatively young, many of them during 9-11, but most millennials in, in when that happened in 2001, didn't have, didn't have devices, right? They didn't see that unfold themselves. So their parents, their educators had the opportunity to really present and lead discussions and things around what had happened and what happens next, where I think about these Zs are growing up, they wake up in the morning and they're watching, not only are they participating in live shooter drills from the time that they're in preschool, right? But they are seen on their phones, they are seeing, they are seeing mass shootings, You know, unfold. They are watching, you know, videos of police brutality on their phones. They are seeing, they are watching the wildfires engulf homes and towns on their phones. And so it creates a lot of stress. And the APA has actually had to create new vocabulary to diagnose Zs and the level of stress that they have around the potential of encountering a mass shooting at any time around the potential of their home disappearing because of a wildfire or a hurricane. Eco-anxiety, climate PTSD, there are new terms that have been created for Zs because they know so much from such a young age and it makes them very savvy and it makes them activist from a young age. It makes them passionate, but it also made them grow up really fast and stole a lot of their childhood. You know, we got to make purchases just based on, I thought that Benetton sweater was cute. So I was gonna (laughs) save up my baby city money and buy it. I didn't know anything else about the fact that I thought that green would look smashing on me. And, you know, it's a whole different thing, right? There isn't that kind of innocence of childhood is really truncated for young people growing up today. And there is absolutely a dark side to Gen Z that we all have to be aware of and be aware of supporting them in because of the front row seat they've had to all that is very raw and real in our world from a really young age.
0: Yeah. Thank you for bringing that up. Cause I think that's definitely a, a downside or flip side thinking about just being exposed to all of everything that's going on right. in the world at once and trying to process that, especially as you're growing up. Um,
1: Absolutely. I mean, the, the spaces that used to be safe for us, right. Our bedrooms used to be safe spaces, right. Where you could get away from the world. Right. But now that's the place where you open your phone and you watch these things unfold live. So there really aren't any safe spaces for young people anymore in that way.
0: Yeah. And Marie, I'm curious in the context of the book, but also just larger picture of your life, how do you define success? Like what does success look like for you?
1: It evolves as we grow, doesn't it? I'm sure you've experienced this as well. So for me, when I founded Global Mosaic um, in 2002, at that time, success was the dream was to be able to work with the kind of companies and organizations and presidential candidates and all the amazing people we got to work with that really cared about culture and that really wanted to listen and be open and hear it right and that was amazing to me that I could create a company and make a livelihood doing that that was in my 30s in my 40s I had children So then what success looked for me at that point, my company was successful, and it gave me the opportunity to have the flexibility as an entrepreneur to travel with them to work from wherever I wanted to work from that was success at that point, because perspective because global perspective and travel is so important to me. When my children were relatively young, we would on average spend three months out of 12 months a year traveling. And they would come with me to work on projects. They would come in countries where I was doing field work or I would work remotely while we did things. So that was success then. Over the last couple of years and since founding Zspeak, which is my newest company that was really a COVID baby and writing this book, my definition of success now, I just turned 51, is to create more of a legacy, right? It's really to make an impact. I have a vision board in my office, I believe as an entrepreneur, very much in being internally driven. You know, there's certainly entrepreneurs who are very successful by being externally driven and identifying a market opportunity, a white space opportunity, whatever it might be, hundred percent, very valid way to go. For me, I'm a very internally driven person where everything that I've created has really been created because I have had an idea of what I wanted to put in the world and create in the world. And so Generation We, Z-Speak, this work I'm doing in the Gen Z space, at this point, success is really about impact. So Gen Z believes, I think the rest, the rest of us generally believe that the largest divide in our country is left versus right, right? Liberal versus Republican. Zs will say the largest divide in our country is generational. They feel like they view the world so differently than the rest of us do. And they view our system so differently than the rest of us do, and that we don't listen to them. And I think that there's a lot of truth in that. If we think of what the media, and this is a big part of why I wrote this book, when you look at the media, the main thing that the media says about Gen Z is that they're digital natives and they are staring at their phones all the time. And they are on their phones all the time. They are on their devices all the time, but it's not just just silly TikTok videos. It's creating the shared empathy. It's authentic storytelling. It's broadening perspectives. It's allowing them to have real conversations with people very diverse from themselves and think about what the future can look like and devise ideas, right? So there's so much that's happening on their phones that are very positive. In addition to that, the media talks about how they're obsessed with with the media, right? They're, They're on their devices all the time, criticizes their cancel culture, which even Zs will admit that cancel culture has gone too far, but the intent was to create accountability, right? so that we could progress and move things forward. And we hear a little bit about their angry street protests. And uh, what else does the media tend to cover about them? I feel like there's something else. Oh, depression. Pronouns. Depression. depression. true, depression. A lot of obsession about pronouns. Why do all we all need to use pronouns now? And so I just feel like the real story about Z's was not being told, right? Those are all very superficial, superficial things to be sharing for the most part, certainly mental health, not at all superficial, very, very important. But the real story about who these are, why they are who they are, the story isn't that they're on their devices all the time. The story is who the devices make them, right? The story isn't just that they're the most diverse generation. The story is because they're so diverse, what does that mean for what the future of our world and our politics and our policies and everything look like, right? And so success for me now is really creating an impact by allowing more conversations to happen, to break down this generational divide so that we can get more Zs and more older generations talking to each other and understanding these ideas and understanding these broader perspectives, right? Just sharing, okay, boomer memes versus Zoomer memes. I mean, we're not getting anywhere there, right? And so, and so I think through the authentic storytelling, coming back to the power of authentic storytelling, the book is really a lot of authentic storytelling so that older generations who read this book can really understand beyond the superficial things being written in the media, here's who these young people are. And yeah. don't be afraid of them. I think a lot of older generations are afraid of them, right? They're afraid of getting canceled. They're afraid of using the wrong pronoun. They're afraid of saying the wrong thing. I'm starting a Forbes column on Gen Z in September. And I've already decided that my first Forbes column on Gen Z is going to be called, Don't Be Afraid. <laughs> <laughs> because so many older generations and business leaders and government officials are afraid of Gen Z because they feel like they're angry and they want to change our systems, but they don't really understand what they want, yeah. right? Do they just want to tear everything down? What do they want? Help us understand what they really want and how we can help achieve that.
0: Yeah, no, I love that. I think that's so important. So, I um, I'm a I'm a millennial, towards the younger end of the millennial, but still squarely in the millennial bucket. And um, my focus is on financial wellness. And I supported a financial literacy camp uh, a few few weeks ago with prim- primarily high school students, so Gen Zs. And I knew going into it, I had a little bit of anxiety around like, am I going to be able to like communicate? Of like, dude, I don't know if if I know what's going on culturally here. Like, I'm so. I feel like out of, out of the loop now when it comes to understanding Gen Z and I, it's, it's really interesting. So I can empathize, um, with, with that sentiment and the need that that's there.
1: It is. And the other thing that I'll just say to build on that, that I think is, is really great evolution as well is, is you probably remember growing up and the whole conversation around creating safe spaces, right? Creating safe spaces, especially for young people where they weren't exposed to things that maybe they weren't ready to be exposed to or whatever that might be, right? Gen Z, because they've grown up in this, re- in this world where they have access to everything that is real and raw 24-7, they've created this idea of brave spaces. So they define their spaces not as safe spaces where people protect themselves from having hard conversations, but in fact, brave spaces where everyone's brave enough to show up and to, and to speak truth. And that's what they're doing on their digital platforms. And that's what they want us to do. That's what they want us to do. And they say older generations aren't willing to show up in their brave spaces, right? They are not willing to cross over. And they want us to show up in their brave spaces and they will forgive us for using the wrong pronoun or whatever it might be. They want to be having these conversations with us. They want to be listened to. They want us to treat them as the citizens that they are. There is a young Z who is incredibly impressive, who we've we've worked with for the last year. And he is one of the youngsies, he's 23 years old, young young black man. And he is incredibly involved in voter rights, the movement uh, around voter rights specifically in Georgia, but really nationwide. And one of the things that he has said is that he feels like in the political sphere that older generations, right? The politicians treat older generations as constituencies to be served but treat Gen Z as a constituency to be managed, like kind of to hold Hmm. at arm's length, like we have to manage these crazy kids who are asking us to defund the police. We have to manage these crazy kids who are in the street and we don't really know what they're yelling about now. And instead of holding them at arm's length, right, and trying to manage Gen Zs, embrace them, engage them, ask them. They want to have these conversations. And that's what my new company ZSpeak is doing, right? Is we have literally thousands of Gen Z ambassadors who've signed up to be ambassadors with our company. And when companies come to us and say, hey, help us understand what we need to do in the sustainability space or the diversity space or the gender space, or help us understand how Z's think about this or that or the other thing, we literally show up with Z ambassadors who get to have the conversation directly with executives. Right? So it's not just us interpreting but it's really fomenting these conversations cross-generationally so we can understand each other and we can understand some of the ideas, right? And some of the increased requirements for how Zs would like things done differently moving forward.
0: Yeah. I love that. I think that's it's powerful and makes a lot of sense, right? Especially if from a Gen Z perspective, one of the biggest divides is generational, right? Whereas if you look at older generations, we look at politics, look at you know, whatever, whatever the probably politics, right. Left and right is probably the biggest thing, at least in the United States. And I think that's really, really interesting because it's, there's not agreement on what that nuance is. So the Z speak really allows that. That's awesome. And Marie, this has been a lot of fun. I really appreciate you, you taking the time. And I feel like I could keep asking questions and we could continue down this for, for many more hours, but uh, I do want to be, be respectful of your time. Can you please, um, Anything, last words you want to leave with the audience? And then please let us know how we can get the book and uh, connect with you outside of this podcast.
1: Excellent. Thank you. Well, I think that I would probably, as a final word, building on the last part of the conversation that we just had, whatever your generation is, right? Whether you are a millennial, whether you are a Gen X like me, whether you are a boomer, whether you are a silent generation, I think there's a tendency as we get older, right? to lean into the status quo a bit more and get a little bit more comfortable. And whether it is through reading my book or whether it's just to opening up more conversations, please do that, right? I think if there's anything that that the last couple of years have taught us, it is that we all need more conversation, not less. And my hope is that this book is one avenue to doing that. So the book launches August 17th on Amazon. You can go to Amazon to find it, Generation We, the power and promise of Gen Z you can go to my website which is Hayek.com where you can purchase the book as well as an audiobook and just read more about the history of it we also have profiles of some of the great gen Z's that we included and interviewed and highlighted in the book if you'd like to hear more of their stories and if anyone is interested in in having further conversations about that whether it be consulting or speaking or bringing some Z's into the organization you know to have those conversations, let us know. It's what I'm all about right now.
0: Awesome. Well, thank you. I'm super excited for the book. Uh, and I appreciate your time, Anne-Marie.
1: Thank you so much, William. Such a pleasure.
0: On your way out, please share the podcast with others. It's the only way that the community grows and others hear these incredible stories from entrepreneurs and top performers. And of course, pound that subscribe button so you are notified when episodes drop every Friday. I'm William Glass, CEO and co-founder of Ostrich, and of course, your host of the Silicon Alley podcast. Have a very profitable day. You got no time to waste, but still you hesitate, caught in a circle saying I'll never leave this place. Ooh, 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 ooh. Some words got you searching for the bright side
1: over and over.